wonderful to be with you again. We are concluding our four-week series called Mosaic. We who are many are one. And I always just like wrapping up and reminding us of what we've talked about and what we've hope, hopefully have learned. Remember in week one, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And so the idea of mosaic is that a mosaic is one large image that's made up of a bunch of smaller ones. We all understand that. And so the body of Christ, his church, is a comparison to that mosaic. That we who are many are one picture. And I believe that that 12th chapter of Romans, Paul's letter to these house churches in Rome, gives us a definition of what we should look like as the body of Christ. And so the first week, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we looked at transformation on how we need to be cross people who die daily, distinctively different than the world and the culture around us, and that that transformation doesn't happen in our own might, in our own power. It's a renewing of our mind or a changing of the way we think, a reprogramming that the Holy Spirit does in each of us. And then week two, we talked about thinking is the body of Christ, that we are not just individual parts. Paul used the illustration of a body where some of us are hands and feet and eyes and ears, but we need to think not like individuals, but like a body. And when we do, we're reflective to the world around us of God's kingdom. And then last weekend, Pastor Ross did a great job of looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, where Paul talks about how we love one another in the body. And he described that kind of love. And I, I like saying that love is the primary color in that picture, that mosaic of the body of Christ. And so this weekend, we are going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. And there is a shift that happens in verse 14, where last week Ross talked about how we love one another. All of a sudden, Paul's letter shifts now to our interactions with those outside of the church walls, those who don't believe as we do. And he takes it a step further, and he even talks about our enemies. And so I am going to warn you right now, if you're watching online, I wish we had a little ticker at the bottom that gave you a warning, because Paul's words are really hard. When you talk about enemies, how we should react, I'm telling you, it is not the way we normally think. You probably know that, but you're going to find that out tonight. So as we go and we look at this, first of all, let's talk about who is our enemy, okay? We tend to take uh, a very extreme view sometimes when we think of enemies. We think of enemies that may be located on the other side of the earth or in other countries and different languages, people who don't like us, specifically Christians. But Paul's letter goes beyond that. And I want us to think not in terms of that type of en enemy on the extreme end, but Paul is speaking here and referring to those who we may be in conflict with. And even as I'm, I'm sharing this and we're reading this, I would like each of you to think of maybe an enemy in your own mind. But not in, again, not an extreme version of an enemy. It could be someone in your family that you just really don't like and you're in conflict with. It could be someone that you work with that you are in deep conflict with. It could be, uh, again, a family member, a business partner. And it could be somebody that doesn't understand your faith or a group of people. It could be political differences or someone who just doesn't respect God's word and what we believe as a church. 
So then the question is, if you're thinking about who that might be, how are we to engage and interact with those people? What should our attitudes be towards those outside the community of faith? Well, let me remind you, before we look at the text for this weekend, Paul is writing to a group of people in Rome, these Roman house churches to which this letter in Roman, Rome, Romans is written. He is writing to a group of people who knew what it was like to be treated unfairly. It's really easy for us to forget that these letters in the New Testament were written to real people with real problems. While the culture was different and the time was different, first of all, these people experienced conflict just like you and I do. They had conflict in their marriages, they had conflict in their families, they had conflict in their friendships, and even in their business associates, just like we do at times. Secondly, Paul's original audience would have dealt with a lot of discrimination and prejudice. Rome was a very hierarchical society with clear lines of distinction between those who were privileged and those who were not. There were different standards of justice in Rome at that time. There were different opportunities for progress, and this was not hidden. And Christians, these first century Christians, these early believers were at the bottom of the totem pole, let me tell you. So they weren't new to conflict and they understood. And finally, we know that Christians in Rome were severely persecuted. Paul himself was eventually killed. We read stories and history of how Christians were thrown into lion pits in front of stadiums full of people for entertainment. So these folks had enemies. They knew conflict. They knew unfair treatment. So with that backdrop, what was Paul's words of advice to them? What did he write to this church? Well, here it is. Follow along with me. Romans chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 14. In that backdrop, Paul says this to that church. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, Paul writes, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, listen to this. This is in the Bible. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. And then finally, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. This is the overarching theme of that last section of Romans chapter 12. And this word should be understandably conquer. In Greek, it's a military word. It is in English as well. And Paul is saying, you're going to be in a battle. At some point in your life, you're going to face evil. And Paul's point is, 
you are either going to win in this battle of evil or you are going to lose in this battle of evil. And the evil that is happening to you, if you're not careful, if you don't do it God's way, the biblical way, the Jesus way, that evil will grow in you. And what he's saying is that when you fight evil with evil, you lose. When you fight evil with good, you win. Let me take it a step further. When you fight conflict, whether it's in your marriage, in your home, with your kids, in your family, at work, in politics, whatever it may be, when you fight conflict with conflict, you will lose. We as the church of Jesus Christ will lose. But when you fight conflict with grace, you win. So how are we to deal with enemies? Well, it really it depends on who you ask. Because here's the thing. If you were to ask the world, if you were to ask people who don't believe in the Jesus way, people who don't trust that God's word is true, here's the first thing they would say. Here's what you should do with your enemies. Hate your enemies. Now that's purposely put in red. You could probably see it better up there, but it gives off a feeling of anger. How many understand that? I mean, who, who blesses enemies? The world says, hate your enemies. Shame them. Put them on blast. Call them out. Post memes making fun of them on social media. Believe the worst about them and tell anyone and everyone who will listen how horrible they are. How many understand that is the culture in the world that we live in right now? That's how we deal with those that we don't like and we don't agree with. We hate our enemies. But Paul says, know you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Church family, we must be different. Remember, we're the people of the cross. We're people distinctively different than the world around us, or at least we should be. We are people being transformed, being renewed. Our minds are being renewed by the, renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to dealing with our enemies, when it comes to dealing with conflict and people that we don't like, when it comes to engaging with those outside of the faith, those who may even hate us for our faith, God says, Paul says this, no, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And how often do we forget Jesus' own words, which I believe Paul is echoing here from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you in Matthew, Jesus said, you have heard the law that says, these are Jesus' words. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute, who persecute you. Now, most of you who are married, you're watching online, or you're here today, and you've, you've been married, there's a, there's a portion about love in the Bible that you most likely had read at your wedding. I married a couple last Saturday, and I myself read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter where Paul, who wrote the book of Romans as well, gives us a definition, a picture, if you will, of what love works, looks like. Now, how often do we tie that chapter away from marriage and away from love with someone that we care passionately about to our enemies? Because that's what Paul and that's what Jesus is saying. So I want to remind you of, of what love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. And I want you to think of that person that may be your enemy or that group of people that might be your enemy. 
Paul and Jesus say this, those people who are your enemies, you're to love them. That means you're supposed to be patient with them, kind to them, not jealous of your enemies, not boastful or proud in the face of your enemies, not rude to, you're not supposed to demand your own way to the enemies, you're not even supposed to be irritable with your enemies, you're to keep no record of wrong. You should never give up on your enemies, never lose faith in your enemies, always be hopeful in your enemies, and endure through every circumstance. And everyone said, Pastor Allen, are you kidding me? That person that drives me insane, that person that posts that, that believes that politically, that thinks that way, that person that you're telling me that that's, we're supposed to be patient and kind and keep no record and wrong and never give up on? No, I'm not telling you that. Jesus is telling you that. Love your enemies. And no, it's not natural. It's not possible in it and of ourselves. And that's why that transformation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us do that. But not only loving your enemies, almost like in a commercial, Paul says, but wait, there's more. He says these words. Paul adds on, love your enemies. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who are weak. We are called to love and even to bless those who per- persecute us, to those who don't like us, to those who may be our enemies. But how many of you know our nature, what comes natural is when we see our enemies fall, we rejoice when they're weeping. And we weep when they rejoice. It's kind of like Baltimore Ravens. When they win, Steeler fans are like, oh, it makes me so mad. But when the Ravens lose, we rejoice. And that's just a football illustration. Paul is saying here, no, don't weep when your enemies win. Don't rejoice when your enemies lose. So not only does the world around us say hate your enemies, they also say this, and we follow suit, cut off your enemies. Ignore your enemies. Remove them from your life. Defriend them and block them. You know what? Surround yourself instead with those who agree with you to avoid those people at all costs. However, Paul says in this text, he says in Romans 12, 18, do all that you can, in some version, in every way possible, if at all possible, do all that you can to what? Live in peace with everyone, and that includes your enemies. I would suggest that Paul is offering a counter-argument to what comes so natural to all of us in dealing with those we don't like. Rather than cutting them off, Paul is saying, Christ follower, brothers and sisters, Paul's saying don't cut them off, there's a better way. And that better way is the second point, lean in to your enemies. See, for many of us, and, and I'll just be transparent with you, one of the things I struggle with is when we deal with difficult people, to just cut them off and remove them from our life. A friend of yours causing you problems, says something you don't like, betrays you, 
Someone in your growth group maybe say something that you didn't know they believed, and you're like, whoa, I didn't know they believed that. I, where'd that come from? Someone at work doesn't understand or respect your faith, tired of being made fun of, we cut them off. Paul says, lean in. And sometimes we're in situations where we can't cut them off. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe you live in the same house. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you're part of the same friend group. So what do we do? We just completely withdraw relationship and we give them the silent treatment and we don't talk to them. So you may physically still be in their presence, but you have completely withdrawn from any relationship. Paul says no. He says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now you may feel, oftentimes we feel like we're obeying this passage, this living in peace by ignoring this person, by cutting them off. Well, I'm not going to fight with them. I'm not going to be caught. So you're dead to me. But that's not what Paul is saying here. This whole passage is about pursuing relationship and overcoming evil with good. It's really important that I interject something here as I talk about leaning in to those who we are in conflict with. Two things. One, and please hear me, because I know some of you really struggle with this. I am not suggesting that there is never a time to regulate relationships or to place boundaries, healthy boundaries in relationships. Paul is not suggesting that you be BFFs with everybody. Paul's point is that you do not avoid relationships with difficult people. Just because someone doesn't agree with you or because you don't like a person or there's conflict, he's saying don't, don't let your first reaction be to avoid relationship. Do not try to pursue peace by simply withdrawing. Do you see the difference? And here's the other thing that's really important. Even more important, this does not mean you're to stay in abusive relationships. Some of you, you're, you're struggling with that because you've been in abusive relationships or maybe you are now and no one knows. I am not telling you that the Bible says to stay in that abusive relationship. The exact opposite, actually. Well, the next chapter we're not going to go into, but Romans 13, Romans 13, Paul explains the role of government and justice. That God establishes government for protection for his people. Paul also says, do all that you can. In other translations it says, if at all possible. Which simply implies that there are situations that are not possible to live at peace. Do you hear me on that? So I am not suggesting that you which are live in abusive or not to set healthy boundaries. I'm simply saying in conflict that is outside of that, we can't cut people off and avoid relationship. There's a really familiar passage that helps explain this. You're going to know it. They won't put it up here, but it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. How many have ever heard the verse, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek? Okay. How many have ever wrestled with that? Like, really? Somebody hits me, Lord, you want me to, here you go, hit me again. Okay, well, let's, let's explain that because it, it, it's, it's really part of this. We often miss the nuance of this passage. That verse is not about, take, not about taking physical violence. It's not about, okay, if you've been hit, 
go ahead and let them physically hit you again. For the Jewish people, slapping a cheek was about insulting the relationship between people. The face was about relationship. So when a relationship is broken, when there is conflict in a relationship, we can respond in one of three ways. And this verse is tied to that. One, that insult comes, that persecution comes, the relationship is broken. One, you can strike back. This is overcoming evil with evil. You hit me, boom, I hit you, we retaliate. Two, you can offer, you get hit in the right cheek, you can offer the right cheek and be passive aggressive. Boom, you hit me, come on, hit me again. Okay, and oftentimes we move to being passive aggressive in our relationships. But for that verse, for the Jewish people, they're saying you get hit, if at all possible, in relationship. I am going to turn and not overcome evil with evil, but I am going to pursue healing the relationship. So when dealing with enemies or people we don't like, the world tells us to hate them. The world tells us to cut them off, remove them in relationship. And then here's another one, and probably the most popular. The world would say, get even with your enemies. Hate them, cut them off, cut them out of your life, and get even. Tell the world what they're really like. Find a way to settle the score so they won't even think about doing that again. Embarrass them and make, make them feel the pain that you felt when you were hurt. And once again, Paul tells us in the verse that there is a better way. And the better way is this. Let go of getting even with your enemies. Paul wrote, we just read, says, dear friends, never take revenge. The church of Jesus Christ should never be in the revenge business. Paul says, leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say... I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, this is how we're supposed to respond. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Christ followers should never, ever take revenge into their own hands. Why? Because vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Does this mean that we're not to seek justice in the world? No, it doesn't mean that. As I've already mentioned, the next chapter, Paul writes about God appointing government authorities as an instrument of justice on earth. And even though their justice is not perfect, it's ordained by God. When they execute justice, they are doing it on God's behalf. One of the most beautiful displays that we have seen of this in modern times, in my opinion, came in the aftermath of the horrific shooting in Emmanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston, South Carolina on June 17, 2015. You may remember nine African Americans were murdered during a Bible study. One of the men whose wife was killed by Dylan Roof, showed up at the courtroom for the sentencing of Dylan. Though his wife was murdered, these are the words that he said to his wife's murderer. He said, I forgive you, son, and my family forgives you. 
but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, he said. Give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and change your attitude. That very same man was asked four years later if he had any second thoughts about what he said in the courtroom that day. And he said this, I always get asked that. And people want to know why, even if he didn't repent. Why would, I why would I ever forgive the man who murdered my wife? And my answer to them is always the same. I chose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word when he tells me vengeance is his to repay, not mine. I need not avenge the vile deeds of Dylan Roof myself. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. repay. Scripture promises me. Dr. John Perkins, an African-American pastor, an author, a counselor to six presidents, a civil rights activist who has actually preached from this pulpit, wrote an incredible book that I highly recommend called One Blood. And in this book, he wrote these words, until forgiveness is given, the victim is literally tethered to their abusers. Paul writes in Romans 12, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. The forgiveness that man showed was overcoming evil with good. This is what that verse looks like played out. So for body of Christ, for you personally, as a follower of Jesus, don't hate, don't cut off, don't get even. Paul tells us we're to love our enemies, to lean in as much as possible relationally, and let go of getting even. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, for the most part, I think as Christians, we understand and we know the Bible says, love our enemies. I just, I don't think we really meditate on that. I certainly don't believe we live it out as your children. And we really struggle with that because it is not natural. So we come to you today and first... But I give each and every person an opportunity to repent. I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would bring to every individual's mind here in this room and watching online. If they have mistreated enemies, maybe they're in a battle right now and they're trying to overcome evil with evil. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would convict. That you would transform and renew their mind and change the way they think that you would empower them to overcome evil with good, that they would learn to love in that circumstance, that they wouldn't cut off or give people the silent treatment, but they would lean into relationship. I pray that they would stop getting even and overcome evil with good. And for some, that means forgiveness. Holy Spirit, do that now. And I pray corporately 
for not only this local congregation, but for the global church, us as a body of Christ. We pick a lot of battles. We want to die on a lot of hills over fights with enemies. Lord, would you help us? Help us to reflect your kingdom, to be people who die daily, that deal with conflict distinctively different than the world around us. Holy Spirit, do that in us. In the mighty name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. Thanks for hearing my heart on that. As Pastor Blaine mentioned a few moments ago and earlier, we're going to transition to congregational or congregational meeting. And before we show a video from our treasurer, Enzo, about the finances of the church, and before Pastor Blaine comes and goes through the process and giving you opportunity to vote for um, our congregational leaders, I wanted you to hear from me, your pastor, for a second. There are two questions that have come up a lot lately in regards to vision. And I recognize that many of you here today and those, again, even watching online, a lot of you have been here for years. Some of you are fairly new. I met Austin. He's here. Sorry, Austin. I'm calling you out. We're here for the first time. And two questions I often get asked. One is related to construction, the community hub that is being built. And the other is to the vision of the church. And so let me address those separately. One, in regard to the construction, as you know, Pastor Rock was here for 36 years. And for many of you, you have said to me, I know Pastor Rock's vision. I've heard it. And I invested in the faith campaign to be a part of that. And I'm excited at the hub, but Pastor Allen, I want to hear your vision for the community hub. And I want to tell you, you're going to, okay? Um, during my sabbatical, I spent a lot of time. And the vision, let me just be clear, the, the DNA and who we are and the purpose hasn't changed. But I do believe the Lord has put a specific picture, if you will, or clarity of words that is for this season. And I know this body needs to hear that, whether you have been here for one hour or whether you have been here for 30 years. And so starting in October, we're going to do a four-week series on the book of Haggai, the prophet Haggai, that I believe the Lord put this in my heart when I was on sabbatical, that really relates. The, the nation of Israel was called to rebuild the temple. And there were some things that, the priorities that were out of order. And God raised up this prophet named Haggai to remind God's people about what they were called to do. And I believe it's an important moment for us. And so I just want you to know that question is going to be answered. You're going to hear from my heart what I believe the Lord is saying to us directly related to that community hub. You're just going to have to wait a few more weeks for it. The second piece is also related to vision. Again, Pastor Allen, what do you see in the next year and a half, two, three, five years? What's the vision of the church? And so again... You're going to hear from me, and I spent a lot of time in August when I was away praying about that. The DNA of this church has not and will not change. I hope it never changed. This church has a unique calling to follow Jesus in diverse community. But again, I believe that there are different seasons in the church. And there is a particular season right now that a task I believe God has called us to. So in January, I've shared this with our staff, that I think it's so important that we as a church revisit that. Who has God called us to be? And what does that look like? Some of it may be familiar, but it will be refreshed. And so in January, I want to take several weeks and go through who God has called this church to be. A long time ago and even now, but what does that look like moving forward? And my heart is, and I really believe this to be the case, that every year moving forward, 
it's important that whether you've been here for a while or whether you knew that we are reminded of the unique calling of this church. And so we're going to do that. So I just want you to know, I will answer those questions, but I'm not going to do it in the next 10 minutes. Um, however, with that said, um, I did spend some time over the last couple weeks giving a shortened version of uh, where I feel we are, we are at right now as a church. Looking back over this past year, many of you know, if you don't, um, that I replaced Pastor Rock Dilliman in October of last year, and I'm just about at the one-year mark of that. And so I wrote something, and my heart is to always speak from here and extemporaneously, but I'm not going to do that tonight because it's so important that I, I don't want you to miss these words. So I'm going to read it. And then Enzo's video will follow and Pastor Blaine will come. And I just will also let you know that, that these words that I'm going to read to you in just a moment are available in the packet. And you'll be able to take those home um, today and this weekend. So this is what the Lord birthed in my heart. ACAC family, listen to this. It is by faith. It was only a year ago with those four words burning in my heart that the Holy Spirit continued to lead me to Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. I challenged you, our church family, to memorize Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. I won't ask if you've done that. As I believe these powerful words needed to be hidden in our hearts as we headed into the year 2021. Indeed, faith would be required as the ever-increasing polarization of our culture continued. As we felt the ongoing impact of the pandemic while navigating major change in our church's leadership. Endurance certainly would be needed to run the race God was calling ACAC to run. It would compel us to strip off the weight of sin that so easily slows us down and to keep our eyes solely focused on Jesus. The one who initiates and perfects our faith. Faith has gotten us here, and faith will lead us forward. However, I recognize today that while we strive to endure, to live righteous lives, and to remain centered on Jesus, it is not our actions, but his faithfulness that has brought us to this moment. We have seen many changes over this past year, not only in the world around us, but right here at ACAC. As I've already mentioned, the leadership of this church has changed, and with that comes a wide ripple effect, including the transition of people. Joyfully, many have made ACAC their new church home and are currently finding their place here. Sadly, others have gone, choosing to worship elsewhere. As the numbers will show, this has affected our giving, and the annual budget of our church. Additionally, ministries have pivoted, reinventing themselves to accommodate the ever-changing health and safety needs caused by the pandemic. And if that were not enough, we have just broken ground on an $11 million community hub that will greatly inconvenience us before it greatly blesses us and our community. And everyone who tried to get here said amen. But through it all, God has been and will be continually faithful to us. As I have sought the Lord for the plans that he has for us here at ACAC, 
I have become increasingly excited about our future. I believe ACAC is uniquely positioned to impact our community and far beyond with the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe that God does desire to expand our influence for the purpose of expanding His kingdom. I believe we are uniquely positioned because of our unique calling as a church to follow Jesus in diverse communities. You see, in a time where we are constantly being seduced to choose sides, to draw lines in the sand, and to surround ourselves with people of the same opinions, the same color, the same politics, and the same experiences, there is a different way, and in my opinion, a far better way. What if ACAC, in its beautiful diversity, could be a community of faith that demonstrates the unity our world desperately needs? What if we modeled the true meaning of diversity, biblical diversity? A unity that is not based on uniformity or likeness, but rather found in the understanding that every human being is created in the image of God, redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ, adopted in a new family, and one day destined for heaven. Jesus said in his word, this kind of unity would convince the world to believe in him. In this season... The prayer of Jesus found in John 17 is the reminder I believe we all need. Jesus, praying for his disciples back then and us today, asked his father for two things. Jesus prayed that we would be made holy by his truth, which is the word of God. And he prayed that we would be one, just as he is one with the Father and the Spirit. If that were to happen... Jesus said, the world will believe you sent me. ACAC family, let us live holy lives according to the word of God. And may we be one as the Father is one with the Son and the Holy Spirit. If we get that right, I believe we will see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for generations to come. Would you join me as we pray for that? Father, thank you. I believe you do have a unique calling for this church. We are set up for it. But through the power of your spirit, we have to do our part. And I believe that begins with holiness, righteousness. Living lives that are according to your word. We need to be people of the book. Would you help us with that? And when we are that we would demonstrate a biblical unity, that we would not be uniform, but we would be united by one blood and one spirit, that of Jesus Christ. And you promised us that if we did those things, the world would believe that you are the son of the living God. Let it be so. Amen.